Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. This has been an eventful week. We just got back from visiting Maine, where my mother-in-law spends part of her summer, and the drive back was kind of long, and we did a college visit stop on the way, and then today was my daughter's first day of her senior year of high school. So uh, we have been very busy with a lot of back-to-school-related stuff and whatnot. With all of that, it's been a bit of a flurry. So uh, I will do my best on tonight's synopses. Uh, how about yourself? What have you been up to? So the kids did their big summer play, and Jack starred as James and James the Giant Peach. Now school has started. They are both in school, and Lillian is doing the fall play, but Jack is doing baseball. And last spring he did baseball, and he had an excellent baseball team uh, that made it through three rounds of the finals. This year is what they call in baseball a rebuilding year. And... Uh, <laughs> All the all the best kids have moved on to the next grade level and uh, to the next level of baseball, and they've got a bunch of new kids. And the first game was brutal. It was brutal. It was what they call in baseball a no hitter. There, uh, no one in uh, no one in Jack's team ever made it on base uh, except for in walks. So there was they did get one run. Jack got the only run, but it was due to four walks. Ah, he has game number two tomorrow, and um, they have yet to have a practice, which doesn't help. But oh uh, <laughs> how does that work? <laughs> the, the coach is just like, all right, everybody show up for the first game. I'll hand you jerseys when you when you show up at the game. Then he's like, OK, another game in three days. And then I asked, like, are we going to have a practice? And he's like, I don't know. That'd be three times a week. I'm like, yes. <laughs> you, these poor kids are just going to get murdered every week. And <laughs> because you never practice with them. Like, what on earth? So it was upsetting. I am mounting a coup with uh, one of the assistant coaches to try to get these kids some uh, some training. And I went ahead and I took Jack to a batting cage tonight, and we uh, went ahead and practiced his batting there. So we'll see how it goes tomorrow. Fingers crossed. Well, best of luck. And uh, I, I sure hope that the other parents who are on his team still don't hear you saying that all the good players have left. <laughs> Oh, they know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. this You're not talking out of school here. Everybody knows the score, it sounds like. Yeah, it's uh, it's brutal. But I want to go ahead and talk about something before we begin. So I decided, hey, there's something I really like to do when I was a kid. I like to read comics. But I also, since I was a nerdy comics reader, I like to read the Marvel Indexes by, uh, oh, I should have mm-hmm. looked up his name, George uh, Orshakowski or something like that. That's that, that no, Orzhakowski is the letter is the letterer, I think. But yeah, it was something like that. I don't remember. Some sort of Polish type name that this guy <laughs> did these extremely in-depth, detailed Marvel indexes. So I went ahead and I they only published them for Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Avengers, and X-Men, but I went ahead and I read up to where we are in all four of those indexes, and I learned all kinds of stuff that I wish I had known when we discussed those issues. I wondered what the Scroll World was called. It says the Scroll World was called Tarnax 4 before it changed its name to Throne World. Okay, I learned that the Tinkerer was revealed in his second appearance to not be an alien, that he just fooled Spider-Man into thinking he was an alien, and that was all just special effects. And in fact, one of the aliens that was with him was the first appearance of Mysterio pretending to be an alien in the t- first Tinkerer story. I learned that when 
the Avengers fought Immortus, and Immortus summoned up Hercules and lots of other mythological people from Limbo, that those were actually, and this makes total sense, dire wraiths. It was later established, ah. and uh, that's why we have two Herculeses, because one was a dire wraith from Limbo. That makes sense. We all know the dire wraiths get sent to Limbo in later ROM comics, and we all know that time is out of order in Limbo, so they were already there and available when uh, Amortis needed people to pretend to be Hercules and other people. This makes total sense. So I have learned all sorts of wonderful things, including a huge fact about tonight's Amazing Spider-Man comic, which brings us to tonight's books. So we are covering the first half of the books from November 1965, and this is a huge month for Marvel Comics. You have been saying for a while that we were about to get to the golden age of Marvel Comics, and I've been a little leery of this. I've been a little suspicious. I'm like, if you got Coletta inking Fantastic Four, it's not the golden age of Marvel Comics. But uh, now, suddenly... We're going to have a new anchor on Fantastic Fortnite, which, to my mind, is the beginning of the Golden Age. A very brief Golden Age where you still have Dicko on Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, and you've got Sinat and Kirby on Fantastic Four, which, to my mind, is the greatest of all greats. And you've got, even better, Johnny Severin inking Kirby on S.H.I.E.L.D. So you've got a pretty fantastic era that, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, begins tonight and is very brief because we're about to lose Dicko. And we're going to lose Severin off of S.H.I.E.L.D. But right now, things are pretty golden. So let's go ahead and jump in with... One one thing that I will say is I do feel that Ditko has started to lose his the fire in his belly for Spider-Man here, as far as I can tell. Uh, you oh, know, I don't know. The Master Planner storyline is one of the all-time great storylines. Uh, I guess you're right. I guess this story in particular doesn't really do it much for me. But no, you you have a good point. The Master Planner storyline is going to be fantastic. Okay, so let's go and do Amazing Spider-Man number 30. So you're right. This isn't one of the all-time great issues. It's not one of the all-time great villains. We have a cat burglar called the cat. And it's definitely not one of the all-time great covers. This cover, it's very unclear what's going on. Once you read the comic, you can understand that the cat has um, little explosives he uses to blow up in the safes, and instead he uses it to blow up the struts of a water tower and is collapsing the water tower onto Spider-Man, who is sort of leaping out of the way with uh, the police shooting searchlights up at him. But that's only clear once you've read the inside of the book. I don't think it's clear at all what's going on from this cover. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I looked it up here. Uh, the indexes were done by George Olszewski. Olszewski, yes. Olszewski. <laughs> So Orshakowski was close, <laughs> but, yes. but not quite. Let's go ahead and jump into the book. The Claws of the Cat, heroically written and edited by Stan Lee, homerically planted and drawn by Steve Ditko, hastily lettered and bordered by Artie Simek. In no way does he say that it is not going to be a good story on the first page, which is always to Stan's credit. We begin the issue. Both Betty and Aunt May are still woozy and Peter is still oblivious to both of them and is uh, not there uh, for either of them in their moments of wooziness. We then see Spider-Man swing across town. There is a cat burglar called the cat. Later, some people are like, wait, does this turn out to be the black cat's father, Felicia Hardy's father? But no, it's not. It's just a one-off cat burglar named the cat. It just so happens to steal J. Jonah Jameson's money out of his safe. Then we get to a huge problem, the big problem with this issue, and a... Big warning sign for Marvel Comics, because for a while now, Dicko and Lee have stopped talking. Dicko has been plotting and penciling his pages and then sending them off to Stan to write 
dialogue for, but presumably Dicko is writing in the margins, sort of, okay, here's what's going on in this scene. But he just, something goes horribly wrong in this issue. And the entire issue doesn't make any sense. So what Dicko was trying to do is he was trying to have multiple storylines going on. The main storyline for this issue is a relatively minor storyline about the cat, this cat burglar, who steals J. J. Jameson's money. Then we cut to a different storyline in which the master planner's goons are robbing an armored car. Well, Stan Lee is like, you know, he's used to good old-fashioned comics where there's only one plot, and Stan Lee is like, oh, I guess these guys are also working for the cat. So here are these goons uh, emerging from a truck to raid an armored car, and one of them says, only the cat could have thought of a scheme like this. Yeah, those guys will never know what hit him. And that is not what is going on. Stanley has gotten confused. He does he does not understand that these are totally separate storylines. It gets even more confusing later in the issue when then Spider-Man breaks up a random robbery that I'm pretty sure is not connected to either, and then cuts back to the master planner's goons saying, blast the luck, Spider-Man caught the gang we hired to pull that bank job for us. I knew the cat shouldn't have trusted anyone except for his own gang. So this time, not only are they the cat's gang, but the other, I think, random goons that Spider-Man beat are also tied up in this whole thing. Brian Corden has done a lot of research on this comic, and apparently, indeed, in the indexes, they point out that in this issue, it is incorrectly stated that the goons are working for the cat. And this is apparently corrected next issue where they go, oh, no, no, that was our mistake. They weren't. Oh, OK. Did Were you aware of any of this? And when the Master of Planners goons say they're working for the cat, what was your reaction to that? Did that seem off to you? You mentioned this in one of the past couple of episodes, so I already had it in mind when it came up. And I was like, oh, yeah, there you go. That That is weird. So it's funny because, like, the other big storyline in this book, um, well, let's go ahead and get to it. Spider-Man goes ahead, runs across the Master Planners goons trying to steal the truck, gets punched off of the truck, and then tries to go over a building to get them on the other end, but they have disappeared. Spider-Man says, no sign of them, but they can't stay hidden from me for long. I eat my crunchies and brush after every meal. I'm sure to win out in the end. So then Spider-Man can't find the Master Planners goons. Spider-Man then mocks J. J. Jameson, who has offered a $1,000 reward for finding the camp burglar, and says, oh, maybe I'll get the reward. This causes Jameson to have horrified fever dreams of what that would be like. And there's a great, very Ditko panel of Spider-Man with a big smile poking through his mask, uh, mocking J. John Jameson while big lips are all yelling at him or laughing at him. It's tough to get more Ditko than this panel. Uh, <laughs> granted, there that's not the last time I'm going to say that this month. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the Doctor Strange, there are going to be many panels that you can't get more Ditko than that. But this is one form of Ditko that you just cannot get more Ditko on. The floating lips and teeth and full heads signaling the humiliation or fear or anxiety or guilt or whatnot of a character is uh is, is just so him yes but then uh cut to a little later on peter is walking down the street and who should he run into but liz allen peter is off to school with a science scholarship flash is off to the same college with a football scholarship and liz is just going to work like a lot of people you know it was relatively uncommon for any American to go to college back in 1965, and especially uncommon for women to go to college. And she's just like, all right, I'm going to my job at the department store, and Flash is following me because he wants to know where I work. Could you do me a favor, Pete? Could you get him off my tail? 
so that he can't see where I work so that he can't harass me anymore. And I can just have him out of my life forever because he's going off to college and I'm just a working girl. And it's rather sad. With our perspective these days, it's also, it seems a lot creepier now than it probably did then. Well, not creepy, but like, because it, it's probably not that uncommon. But I mean, this is just very, uh, you know, stalker kind of controlling sort of behavior here, which I'm sure at the time was just like, oh, he's a jealous man. But it has more of a sinister undertone to me than I think was ever intended in the time. Yes. But one of the things I learned from reading the Marvel indexes is that Liz Allen is then like, uh, please get Flash off of my tail. I got to go to work. Thanks, Pete. Goodbye. And I found out from the indexes that she next appears 102 issues later. Wow. So that is it for Liz. That is the sad goodbye of Liz Allen, working girl. You know, Flash remains a major character in the book. He and Pete go to college together, and Liz just gets a job. So then Pete, sure enough, is trying to keep Flash off of Liz's tail, and decides the only way to do that is to punch him unconscious. It's not a well-drawn punch, I guess, because it's supposed to be such a light punch, but it's very unclear what's going on in the art. But we then see Flash unconscious, and as you pointed out online, he says, good, I want him to remember I was holding him when he wakes up. Like, okay. <laughs> Which, you know, <laughs> I just, read, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm a 10-year-old boy. I'm reading too much into that. All right. As with often in comics, way too much control over how long someone goes unconscious when you punch them. Oh, yeah. And uh, this is the ultimate example of that. Spider-Man then goes up and stops a burglar, seemingly this one not working for the cat. And then goes back down and has total control of when Flash Thompson wakes up and he lies about where Liz Allen works to send him off in the wrong direction. Then we got to a storyline where seemingly Stan does understand what Steve meant, because we have a storyline where even though it's not tremendously clear in the art, presumably Stan is correctly interpreting Steve's storyline here in that Peter Parker goes to Betty Brandt and she says, well, Ned Leeds just proposed marriage to me. Now, surely this is really what Steve intended. Yeah. But if they were just not communicating at all at this point, you know, was this just written in the margins? Like at this point, Ned has just proposed marriage to Betty. I don't know if the communication went so awry on the main story. But yeah, well, I know that by the end, they weren't talking to each other at all. I can't necessarily say where exactly along the way the communication just completely stops. But yeah, let's assume that there was zero communication other than notes on the page. But, you know, I, who knows how involved those were, what he thought was straightforward and what needed explaining. And, you know, right here, as you say, there's really not much visual storytelling-wise to get across the fact that he proposed. We never see him down on one knee or anything like that. So presumably he made this explicit, and maybe earlier with the uh, Master Planner's goons, he may have just assumed that Stan knew what was going on there. Who knows? Pete is just horrified to find out that Ned has proposed to Betty, and she's not great about it. She's not like but I'm going to tell him no because I'm in love with you, which is what she's thinking but does not say. And then, you know, she sort of starts to say, well, there's big problems with you, but, and then he's like, there's big problems with me, goodbye. And he walks out and slams the door. And she's like, wait, I was going to say, but he's already gone. Meanwhile, Spider-Man, as I said before, stops these other goons from robbing a place. 
I think that was just supposed to be a third unrelated bit of goons, but then we cut back to the actually a fourth, a fourth one, right? Fourth. Because yes, because we had the other robbery earlier. Lots of crime going on in New York City. Although, although it's really difficult to tell because we know there was at least one miscommunication. So then it just sort of casts doubt on all these other things about you know, what was intended here. We've lost confidence in the storytelling at this point. So then we cut to. Frederick Foswell, the former big man, is working for J.J. Jameson and also working undercover as Patch the Informant. He has a lead on the cat. Betty is desperately trying to call Pete, and Pete won't pick up. Spider-Man goes out to try to get the cat. We then get to the scene shown on the cover where the cat carries around explosives to blow up safes, but he uses it to blow up a water tower and crash it on Spider-Man. You know I always like Dicko's water towers. And yes, I do. And it's one used in a story although I don't think it should have been on the cover because it was unclear. Spider-Man confronts the cat, but he ends up not getting credit for the capture because the cops basically do it. The cops get the capture. And so then J. Jonah Jameson does not owe money to Spider-Man because they was clearly the cops that caught the camera or not Spider-Man. Then Pete goes in just to sell photos that he took of it, and Betty is trying to talk to him. Peter, I've been hoping you drop by. I simply must talk to you. He says, why bother Betty? There's nothing more for us to say. Ned Leeds proposed to you, and he's the kind of guy you want. So let's just leave it at that. Then he goes off moping, and there's a big ghostly Spider-Man between him and Betty. And that is the end of the issue. I think that it's great to begin the Master Planner storyline, which is one of the all-time great Spider-Man storylines. I think it's an excellent escalation of the... Peter Parker's story to have Ned go ahead and propose to Betty and does a nice job wrapping up this whole era of the book before the college students come on. Is that next month when the college students come up? I'm not remembering. Yeah, we'll find out. And so Betty is being shown the door here. She is eventually going to marry Ned after all, but it's going to take about another hundred issues for her to actually marry Ned. And she's going to just largely disappear from the book here. Eventually they will have old home week and they'll bring Liz Allen back and they'll bring Betty and Ned back about 100 issues from now. But this is, I think, an excellent issue. It's beautifully drawn, it's beautifully inked, and it's well potted by Ditko. And unfortunately, huge problem with the scripting by Lee, where Lee just didn't get the plot, just didn't understand the plot, and made huge mistakes, which apparently they then tried to retroactively fix next issue. Yes, I think that in terms of the personal emotional storyline here, this is an excellent issue. When it comes to the plotting by Ditko, I will say that the fact that, as we were talking about, it seems like there are four separate sets of robberies going on that seem like they're probably utterly unrelated seems like at least one too many. Yeah, (laughs) you know, one or two too many. So I I think that he could have tidied that plot up somehow by eliminating one or two of those extra groups of burglars. That being said, a couple of panels that jumped out at me. One is on page 11, where Spider-Man is capturing the, I think, third or fourth, no, the fourth group of thieves here. Last panel of page 11, one of the goons says, behind us, look out, it's Spider-Man. Two of the goons turn around to see him and they're like, behind us, where? I don't see anything. Neither do I, but it's because you just turn your head and Spider-Man's already taking care of your compatriots in front. A delightful panel. A few pages later, when Spider-Man is chasing the cat, the cat at one point turns around really quickly and just shines his flashlight in Spider-Man's eyes. And then that 
dazzles him so much that the cat is then able to knock him off the ledge using his grappling hook, which seems a little lame to me. But as I mentioned when I made one of our social media posts the other day, this seems to be a concept which fascinated Steve Ditko. In that when he creates the Ted Cord incarnation of Blue Beetle several months from now, they tease what his super science gun does. Like they're like, oh, he's got the super science gun, the BB gun. What does it do? And in the end, it's like, oh, yeah, it's a strobe light. <laughs> it's like, what? So I just find it interesting that for some reason, this weird concept just seemed to be on Steve Ditko's mind and he didn't want to give it up here. All right, let's do Fantastic Four number 44. You get to do it. And oh boy, this is wonderful <laughs> news. Ah, we are here. It has finally arrived. I am so happy. Yes, indeed. So we are working with Fantastic Four number 44. The gentleman's name is Gorgon. Or, what a way to spend a honeymoon. And we can see on the cover that Dragon Man is back, that uh, Medusa is back, and we see just the back of this guy named Gorgon. Uh, on the title page, this is dreamed up by Stan Lee, sketched down by Jack Kirby, inked in by Joe Sinnott. Yay! Yay! Lettered around by S. Rosen. Uh, and then on the bottom of this page, it has just floating heads of our main characters, and it has underneath them Stretcho, Sweetums, Blue Eyes, and Matchhead. <laughs> Which, on this title page, it's a big splash of Gorgon, who we're going to be seeing more of. One thing that I've noticed is that his eyes are shaped really weird in this really issue. Really weird. They're like kidney bean shaped. It's like the the big bean in Chicago's downtown park. Yeah. That's the shape. That's the shape of his eyeballs here. Some folks online were suggesting that it was supposed to maybe look like goat eyes. Uh, and goats do have weird eyes. That's not the way they're weird. But you know, in the days before Google image search, you might not have that on hand. You might be like, oh, I think this is what goat eyes look like. Right. So I'm going to try to give a brief summary here, and then I'm going to go back and talk about specific panels and such that I want to talk about. So, yes, Sinat is back, although... So we should explain when we say that Sinat is back that there had just been a very, very brief visit by Sinat when he had inked issue five that introduced Dr. Doom and a little bit of issue six with Dr. Doom and Namor. And then he had tragically, painfully, awfully disappeared for the next several years and now he is back, and he is back to stay. He's going to ink every remaining Kirby issue of Fantastic Four, and then ink the book off and on for another 20 years after that. Yes, and... Uh, I, I, 20 I, years? Yeah. 30 years? Is that right? No, I think more like 20. He left when John Byrne came on. But then he comes back for the end of John Byrne's run. Oh. He inked Byrne for later on in the run. And then he continued inking, I think, Salvi Sema after that. And then I think inked Rich Buckler after that. So he may have made it up to the 90s, I think. Oh, wow. Okay. I hadn't realized that. But yeah, I remember hearing, I think it was George Perez who said, oh, yeah. So whenever I was drawing Fantastic Four, I could just sort of relax and not really have to worry too much about all the details because I knew Senate was just going to finish it up for me you know it's like yeah. because he really was doing finishes or embellishments for pretty much the rest of the time through the time period you're talking about so you know you could just basically sort of do rough in what was happening and know that senate was going to finish it for you so he really creates a consistent look for this book for yeah the next 25 years or longer 
basically in this issue, we're seeing Reed and Sue's newlywed life. So we have things like Reed Richards building the most high-tech dishwasher in the universe here. But, but it's <laughs> and, interesting. It doesn't say it's a high-tech dishwasher. It just says, I think I've got it, Sue, the world's first fully automated dishwasher mechanism. And it looks like he's in a dishwasher. I'm like, didn't dishwashers already exist before 1965? <laughs> he seems to yes. be taking credit for the whole idea of a mechanical dishwasher, which is like, um, dude, uh, I hate to tell you that's already been invented. <laughs> well, this is the way he's trying to show his love. You know, yes. <laughs> Johnny is, you know, sick of all the mushy, mushy romance. So he heads out in his Corvette or Mustang or whatever it is to go out and be a hotshot teenager and finds out that Medusa, who has been an evil menace of theirs until just like, what, a couple of issues ago. Uh, but she is hiding in his back seat and basically kidnaps him and makes him drive her out to some remote location outside of New York City. That car that Johnny's getting into, uh, does it have a back seat? Uh, yeah, that's a, looks like a Corvette. Probably not. Uh, would it have a so-called rumble seat, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, oh, right. I forgot. They actually do address it. I think, again, this is Stan and Jack coming right. into conflict. So she says, right. it was very thoughtful of you to customize part of your car, adding a small jump seat. It was the most convenient place for me to hide. That sounds like a very inconvenient place to hide. <laughs> but, uh, since <laughs> yes, but that's why the door was unlocked. Yeah, cl clearly uh, Stan Lee was like, uh Corvettes don't have back seats, right? Uh, let me try to fix this. She is trying to escape Gorgon. Gorgon is looking for her. He knows that she was somehow involved with the Fantastic Four recently. He shows up at the Fantastic Four and attacks them, but she has already made her getaway. Uh, in the remote location they end up at, they are near State U, which they mentioned, which is where Reed and Ben went to college and Sue, actually, I guess Reed proposed to Sue when they went back there for a visit uh, several issues ago. That was the issue with Dragon Man and Dragon Man was left slumbering underneath some something or other and never to be seen again, except he is. So Dragon Man is awakened by Johnny and Medusa somehow and he comes out and the texture on his tail and such is just wonderful. And if you were to see this inked by Coletta, I'm guessing that this would have not been nearly, it just would not have been beautiful like it is here. Just the, the scaly hide and the sort of volume uh, of various parts of what you're seeing there is uh, just just luscious. <laughs> I really just like it. Gorgeous. Yeah, the level of detail, the level of tactile feeling in Sinat's work. And also just before that on page seven, the first panel, that's a Pierre Sinat panel of Johnny being hit by the vacuum gun. These uh, very dynamic panel of one point perspective force lines going out from Johnny. I love the way Sinat inks chins. I always think his chins are especially fantastic. He, he inks very strong chins and, uh, you know, just look how solid, I mean, Kirby is just a much better penciler with Sinat inking him. When Claudia inks Kirby, people don't look like human beings. People look flat and weird and awkward and like they're not standing on the ground, like there's no gravity. When Sinat inks Kirby, everybody feels real and solid and like they've got 
real weight and dimension to them. They look like they're standing very solidly on the ground. Look at Johnny lying on the ground on page seven. He really feels like you can feel the weight of him lying on the ground. It is absolutely gorgeous. So let me say, this issue is a lot. You've already got a double chase going on. You've already got Gorgon chasing Medusa and Medusa chasing after Johnny and then the Fantastic Four are about to be chasing after both of them. That's a lot to have going on. That would have been more than enough to sustain an issue without ending Dragon Man. Dragon Man really is somewhat of an extraneous element in this issue, but I love it. You know, if I was the editor, I would have said, you can take out Dragon Man. You've got plenty going on without him. That needlessly complicates the plot. But as it turns out, it's great. And it's a very complex plot. And there's a lot going on here, but I think it works out really well. Yep. Last time we saw Dragon Man, we know that he had sort of the King Kong beauty, you know, soothes the breast of the savage beast or whatever kind of. I guess that's music and I'm confusing those two. But both Sue and Medusa seem to be inducing this in him and they seem to recognize this. But of course, the men show up and they're just like Dragon Man and they go get into a big fight we have a nice three-way fight basically between gorgon on one side the fantastic four on another side and dragon man on a third side with medusa kind of in between they all end up back in new york city again still having this big three-way fight gorgon says that he must bring medusa back to where she belongs. We are not really told yet where that is or who that's to. Uh, And the FF is really oddly protective of Medusa. You know, as you said, she was basically kind of a, uh, well, I don't know if you could say this about a female character, but sort of a mustache twirling villain. (laughs) Last time we saw her and now suddenly they're like, oh, well, she she seems like she's in uh, in need of protection. But then the issue ends mid-battle to be continued next issue. And there's just a, a lot of fun destruction going on in abandoned areas of New York City. They have a lot of fun with the whole idea of there's a lot of urban blight that they're tearing down. And so all of these fights happen to be in areas of the city that <laughs> are supposed to be destroyed anyway. So why don't we just go ahead and have the battle there? So um, well, once I, again, that's Stan going in and explaining like, you yes. know, Kirby is just gleefully destroying all these buildings and Stan has to jump in and go like, they're abandoned. They're abandoned. Uh, nobody's, nobody's <laughs> being killed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, you know, oh yeah. Robert Moses is tearing down a whole bunch of stuff in the city. So let's just say this was stuff that Robert Moses was just going to tear down. So we just tore it down for him. So yes. <laughs> there's another point in the book where we have a really weird phrasing of something, and it sounds like a term that would be uh, used later uh, in quite a racist way, and I do not know what this was meant in. Thing and Sue and Reed are talking about Gorgon's departure. Reed makes a comment about how, you know, he's as strong as the Hulk, but it wasn't him. The Thing says, nah, even that green... And then a racist term for Asian people never walked up walls. What page is this? On page 11, panel four. It's the last word balloon in page 11, panel four. How? Oh. He says, not even that green, G- we'll, we'll spell it G O O K, never walked up walls. I haven't thought about that word in years, but I think of that as an anti Asian slur. But obviously, that's not intended here. This isn't supposed to be an Asian character. Yeah, and particularly a Vietnam War era, you know, Vietnamese slur more than others, although I think it was used right. more generally. I, I don't 
know what the heck's going on there. <laughs> yeah. I do not know what to make of that. It almost but. seems like it almost seems like he meant to say goon, and it may even just be a typo. That is also a possibility. Just a couple other things to point out. Apparently, Gorgon can fly the Fantastic Four's helicopter. Lucky for him that he has that ability. I did not know that. <laughs> yes. Finding out later how remote he is from human society, I was a little surprised that he was able to do that. And just even know what a helicopter is in order to fly it, he was able to break into their headquarters <laughs> and go like, that's a helicopter. I know how to fly it. I'm taking off. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like, well, the plot demands it, so let's just go ahead and do it. Okay, well, I am done with Fantastic Four. This was a momentous, or one might say monumentous issue with the arrival to stay of Joe Sinat here. And we are starting the ramp up to the Inhumans and Silver Surfer and Galactus and more Inhumans and Black Panther and whatnot. So we are, we are really heading into probably... I would put this next like year of Fantastic Four right up there with like issues three through 12 or so of Spider-Man in terms of just the volume and quality of creative ideas that are being put out. We're just about hitting the greatest part of that in the Fantastic Four in this next little bit. Yeah, issues 44 to 60 are considered to be you know, one of the best runs any book ever had. The first 17 issues of the Kirby Lee Sinat run. The true golden age begins with this issue, and it is a great issue, and it is fantastic. The golden age of the silver age. The golden age of the silver age. Okay, fine. I'm 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 confusing things. The golden age of the Marvel age of the silver age. That's what <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yeah, the way I said in my notes is First fully automated dishwasher mechanism like we all have now. Did that not exist? Or you could just do some dishes, dude. (laughs) But dishes, you know, dishes are the worst. And then I don't know if you saw the letters page, but there is a letter from Dave Cockrum. Oh. Future X-Men artist Dave Cockrum writes in, and he has an excellent point that I felt ashamed that I did not catch. I'm a big Marvel Comics fan. I am also a big James Bond fan. And he points out that... Dr. Doom in issue 40 says, I trust you enjoyed that witticism for it is the last you shall ever utter. Says, now this sounds suspiciously like the line from Goldfinger, choose your next witticism carefully, Mr. Bond. It may be your last. So he's like, Stanley, you just completely stole a line from Goldfinger. And Stan <laughs> then claims in the answer to the letter column. Or Flo Steinberg. Says, Orflo Seinberg says, as far as that line you claim we copped from Goldfinger, forget it. We can show you yarns that Stan wrote 20 years ago in which he used the same type of phrase. Only it mixed up Marvel would you find a writer who copies from himself. I don't buy it, Stan. You stole that line from Goldfinger. It is too similar to just be coincidence. I should have caught that when we got to it, but I did not. All right, let's go ahead and do Journey into Mystery with Thor number 122. We are about to change the title to just Thor, but it's still this way for now. Where mortals fear to tread. We have a gorgeous cover that is clearly not inked by Coletta. It is inked by somebody much better, where we have a little preview of the very end of the book where the absorbing man faces Odin and Thor is just sort of behind a curtain watching what is going on. But unfortunately, then the book begins and we have written with compassion by Stan Lee, drawn with comprehension by Jack Kirby, inked with confidence, not true, by Vince Coletta, <laughs> lettered for compensation by Artie Simak. In fact, this is inked with great incompetence by Vince Coletta. The first page looks absolutely awful. 
Yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's, and, and once again, as you were pointing out, Thor has no shadow underneath him in any way to show where he has contact with the ground, which in my issue at least is colored orange, where it looks like he should be on a city street. I guess you can see some shadow under his left knee, but you know, there's nothing to anchor that front foot onto the ground there. And uh, no, it really does make it exactly. more, just sort of floating. Yeah, there's no wait. No one is connected to the ground when Claudia inks Kirby. He becomes a bad penciler. Claudia inking Kirby. Kirby is a bad penciler. It does not look like it is the ink's fault. It looks like it is Kirby's fault when Kirby inks Claudia. When well, Sadie, I, th- I think Kirby when, leaves a lot up to interpretation. You know, Kirby was doing a lot of work. So by today's standards, or even by the 80s standards, he was doing what we then later would call layouts or breakdowns. When he then does what they call layouts, it's even way more basic than, you know, than that. Uh, I, I think that he just leaves a lot up to interpretation. And so it depends on the quality of the interpreter that he has on him. Yes. We then get a big fight between Absorbing Man and Thor, and of course that's fun, but in many of the panels, there is nothing in the backgrounds. We know that Kirby did not do that. We know that Sinon is erasing the backgrounds so that he does not have to ink them. That is clearly what's going on in the middle of page three. We cut back to Asgard, where Loki is more and more doing away with the pretense that he is uh, serving Ularic, the sorcerer, who he has actually sealed up under the ground. But then Loki suddenly decides he has been watching this fight that he set up between Absorbing Man and Thor. He's like, I just came up with a better idea. I'm going to grab Absorbing Man away from that fight with a big yoink. And then Thor is like, uh, what happened to Absorbing Man? He just vanished before my very eyes. Loki has brought Absorbing Man to Asgard and decides that Absorbing Man is so strong he could declare war on Odin for Loki's purposes. Meanwhile, back down on Earth, Thor just sort of happens to suddenly find Jane, which was... (laughs) I just found this ridiculous enough that I was going to talk about it here. And it says, um, many stories above, the imprisoned Jane Foster who had daringly caused a gas explosion in order to shatter her bulletproof window glass, screams as only a desperate female can. And there's just smoke billowing out of this broken window. So she apparently set off a gas explosion strong enough to actually break open bulletproof glass that is i don't know how far away from the stove that she was presumably getting this gas from and she is somehow completely unharmed despite the fact that you know this is a big enough explosion to just fill the place with sooty gas or smoke i should say it's it's a little weird and i think this is one of those things where stan was like how the heck do i explain what's going on here and this uh, all assumes just the massive coincidence that Thor would end up outside Jane's window. Yes. So then Thor finds Jane, is like, oh, I haven't seen her in months. Here she is. And then he decides to, at the very wrong time, change back into Don Blake so that he will be Don Blake when she wakes back up. But then we find out who that dude with the hood was. And when we discussed last issue, neither of us could remember who the dude with the hood was. Well, right. it turns out it is someone from Thor's past. It is Harris Hobbs, the affiliated press reporter. We met the first time Thor fought the Absorbing Man months ago. And he's like, yes, I have kidnapped your secretary. I have worn a hood around her. I'm like super creep. And it is all because I knew that eventually you would show up as Thor and change back to Don Blake. And I could get a photo of you changing. I'm not sure how one photo could summarize the whole change. I think it would be I was thinking the same thing. I was like, people would be like, what what am I looking at? 
<laughs> what am I looking at here? <laughs> uh, so then it turns out this whole thing has been a trap for him to find out Thor's secret identity so he can blackmail him. We then cut to Loki and Absorbing Man up in Asgard. Loki sends the Absorbing Man out to go raid Odin's place. We get gorgeous panel on the bottom of page nine of Absorbing Man swinging his ball and chain around while he's fighting a whole bunch of Asgardian soldiers. We have a very cool panel of someone with a big spiky mace is attacking Absorbing Man, and he absorbs not just the metal of the mace, but the spikes of the mace. His wrecking ball also gets spikes. It's a very cool panel on page 10. (laughs) Yeah, it's wonderful. Back on Earth, Don Blake is taking care of Jane, who is happy to have him back. But then he's like, ugh, now I got to go deal with Harris Hobbs. And he goes outside of town to meet with Harris Hobbs. And Harris Hobbs like, you've got to deal with me. I hold all the cards. I'm not trying to cause any trouble. But as a reporter, I've got a job to do. And if you'd give me the whole story behind your double identity, it would be the scoop of the century. I'm going to point out about that panel that either Stanley as editor should have taken that panel and taken it to the photostat machine and shrunk it to fit in all that dialogue in the extra room that would give him, or he should have pared down the, the amount of dialogue he put in that panel. Yes, this is a slow panel where I think there's a lot of exposition that's supposed to come in, but you should not have your word balloons bursting out of both the top and the bottom of a panel. That is not good comics, in my opinion. It's bad comics. So then Harris Hobbs is like, look, I got you over a barrel. What you going to do? And Thor's like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kick your ass. He's never (laughs) had this much control before over his time vortexes, but he whips up a time vortex and it's like, yeah, let me show you what I can do. I'm going to take you back to the time of the dinosaurs. And he's whipping them around in a time vortex uh, as dinosaurs are moving around and attacking them. It's like, now I'm going to take you to the death of the planet Earth in the far future. And Harris Hobbs says, take me back. Please take me back. Sounds just like uh, it's a wonderful life. Take me back, Clarence. Take me back. Yes. <laughs> so then Harris Hobbs is suitably cowed by all this. And it's like, OK, I clearly messed with the wrong guy. But he's still going like, I'll make you another deal. Just take me to Asgard and I won't write it up. You can take me to Asgard and then wipe my mind of it. Just so that I'll know I got to see Asgard, even though I won't know I got to see Asgard. And Thor's like, I guess, you know, like, says he's a brave, dedicated man. I must visit Asgard now myself. I shall do it. Says very well, mortal, your wish is granted. Prepare to behold wonders such as men have only dreamed of before. But in fact, he would not be the first mortal to go to Asgard. He would be the second because Absorbing Man is already on Asgard kicking ass. And then Absorbing Man gets to Odin and Odin shoots him with a cosmic bolt. But he then absorbs the cosmic bolt and attacks Odin with his own power. And that is our big cliffhanger. I think this is a fantastic issue. It was fun to see Thor fight Absorb Man. It's even more fun to see Absorb Man versus the hordes of Asgard and eventually against Odin himself. I think the storyline of someone getting a picture of Thor changing and then trying to blackmail him is a fun idea. And Harris Hobbs, Harris Hobbs always a guy with strange, strange journalistic ethics. You recall that he carries around dynamite with him to throw at people when he uh, feels that suits his needs. Um, he's uh, <laughs> he's always right. been a little strange, and I absolutely love the sequence of Thor hauling Harris Hobbs' ass before and after human history to uh, just show him that you're messing with the wrong dude. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I love to see Absorber Man change into all sorts of cool things. He gets attacked by a spear and becomes like a big spearheaded thing for a while. Yeah, he <laughs> they have just tons of fun with Absorbing Man. 
Yes, this is a fantastic issue. Any more other thoughts before we move on to Tales of Asgard? Yes. All I want to say is that the first several pages where there's the big fight scene between Thor and Absorbing Man on Earth before Loki summons Absorbing Man back to Asgard, you blew by that a little quickly. Now, I know that's because we're just trying to go and summarize things, but I just want to point out that is just a just a gorgeous fight scene, you know, especially for something that's sort of a throwaway thing in this issue. But it's uh, it's just very, very well done. Yes, it is gorgeous. OK, let's go ahead and go to Tales of Asgard. Tales of Asgard, we are again very slowly making our way through the storyline of dealing with why there are <laughs> cracks in the Odin sword. At this point, Loki and most of the sailors on the boat that they are in, they are still in this very perilous place on the ship that they've been in for a couple of issues now. And suddenly Loki decides to foment a mutiny. At first, it looks like he's leading everybody in mutiny. And I'm like, well, wait, what about the Warriors 3? They're there. Do they join Loki? Well, no, they don't. And then they each get the best showcase they've had so far, where you got to see them fighting on Thor's side against the mutineers. They had teased them as though they were villains when they were first introduced. But here's where it is made clear that they are on the side of good. Yes, and the side of Thor, more importantly. First, we get Fandral, then we get Hogan, and then we get Volsag. And Volsag is just wonderful. And he says, fear not, thunder god, thou hast the support of invincible Volsag. The mere sight of my noble self makes strong men tremble. Thor says, a few stop blows from my hand would not be amiss either, enormous one. And he says, of course, son of Odin, I was merely awaiting the proper moment to strike. And now we shall see who shall be first to feel the wrath of Volstagg. Somebody throws a mace at the back of his head and he falls over and Thor thinks he accomplished more in defeat than he could have in victory. His very fall toppled half of the mutineers. So that's lucky that he happened to fall on the mutineers instead of on his own side. Stanley is absolutely loving having his own version of Falstaff, who he gets to have so much fun with. And then you recall that last issue ended on a cliffhanger when Balder had climbed up to the the big head on the front of the ship. I don't remember what those things are called to blow a horn. I think it's called the figurehead, isn't it? Figurehead. OK, he finally blows the horn and we still don't find out why we have the same <laughs> cliffhanger in this issue that we had in last issue of why is Balder up there blowing that horn? In the meantime, Thor and the Warriors three really getting to fight for the first time have put down the mutiny. It is an absolutely gorgeous five pages. I love it. I love the Warriors 3. I love Volsag. This is a wonderful issue. Yeah. My one thing that I had for my so-called visual notes for this Tales of Asgard story was that entire page of Volstag bragging and then getting knocked down and dropping on top of all the mutineers. That is just such a fun sequence and so fun getting to know this character who is such a fun character. Yes. Oh, my God. The bottom of page two, when we've got a beautifully colored panel by whoever's coloring it, the colorist is creating different planes of interest while we see Thor fighting Loki, while there's several planes of uh, mutineers fighting people who are loyal to Thor on several levels, gorgeously penciled by Kirby and not ruined by Claudia. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it's funny. I've been getting into some discussions about Coletta in various forums online, and people have pointed out that you can go and find some of Coletta's work from like the 50s on romance comics and stuff. And he did a fantastic job. Like he was not an untalented guy. He just was prioritizing making money over doing good comics, because as far as he was concerned, 
hey, these are disposable. This is like a newspaper or like a magazine. People usually don't just keep them around and go back and look at them all the time. This is going to be in the trash in three months. So I just want to go ahead and get the work done and be able to have a big house for my family. Uh, But he really is quite talented. And every now and then he will go and actually spend the time to do some of this stuff. And yeah, the bottom panel on page two of the Tales of Asgard story is one of those moments. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to move on to Strange Tales, where we have both Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., and Doctor Strange. Unfortunately, Doctor Strange doesn't make it anywhere on the cover except for the corner box. It's all Nick Fury. The title of this is Sometimes the Good Guys Lose, which, you know, is one of those things that they keep on skirting around various Comics Code Authority rules. And one of them is the good guys are not allowed to lose. Right. Right. Bad guys cannot win. And so actually putting here in the title, sometimes the good guys lose is it seems to me almost like daring the uh, Comics Code Authority to pay attention to them on the splash page. What color is Gabe in the original version here? He's brown. (laughs) Really? Because for whatever reason, whoever colored this version, he looks like pea soup. Yeah, I guess it's a little pea (laughs) soupish. Okay. Yeah, it's a greenish brown. (laughs) Yes. I'm like, guys, you got to figure this out at some point here. This is an issue. We start out with Nick Fury is in this big spy plane bomber thing, and they find the Betatron bomb, and they're about to destroy it, but they're too late by seconds. The Betatron bomb is launched into orbit. Nick destroys the missile site anyway, because, you know, at least we can destroy some of their infrastructure. Stark has a secret weapon for S.H.I.E.L.D., and he is going to take Nick Fury to go see it. It's like eyes only. Only Nick Fury is allowed to see this. So he's taking him into, you know, I guess these days we would call a skiff. Meanwhile, a traitor working in S.H.I.E.L.D. is letting a whole bunch of Hydra agents in, and they attack right as Nick and Tony are getting to the final thing. Nick goes and attacks Hydra that's coming at them, and page seven, uh, where it's just Nick Fury against the massive armies of Hydra, is just Uh, superlatives fail me on this, particularly the second panel of page seven. I, you know, in doing some of the social media stuff, I posted this panel and mentioned that it looks like Jeff Darrow to me. Yeah, Uh, it just looks so ahead of its time. Well, either ahead of its time or looking at some of the European comics that are out there. What do they call Hergé's style? Like Lean Lean Claire. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's a Lean Claire panel, if I'm not mistaken. Just, yeah. oh, so good. Anyway, they eventually are able to take Nick Fury captive. Tony Stark, meanwhile, has enclosed himself in this protective glass box that they can't get into. They give up on him and pile into this heavily armored tank. And the capsule that they pile into is really unfortunately phallic. Yeah. <laughs> Especially the fact that it then extends outward in a couple of panels later. It's like, um, uh, have you thought about this? But it then takes off as a rocket that's coming out of the heavy armor. And the splash page on page 10 of the rocket heading up into orbit is just spectacular. And it really is a combination of Kirby and Severin to a great degree because it's this really odd kind of Batman angle here where, you know, you're turned 
more than 45 degrees. The texturing on this missile does not look like it should work. It should no, not it work. No, it doesn't. High- I know because it's like, <laughs> how is this different from what God is doing with using a thousand lines when one would do? This is very scratchy. He's doing a lot of lines and it is just gorgeous. This is what God is trying and failing to do. This is, yeah. you know, using cross hatching in a way that builds up a wonderful sense of dimensionality and it is absolutely gorgeous it should not work this is not what i generally like to see in <laughs> comics i don't like to see this level of cross hatching severin makes it work where claude just could not and severin is just doing a beautiful job here yeah and you know when it comes to coletta your complaints about like oh just how many millions of lines do you have that's not the part that bothers me about coletta the parts that bother me about coletta are all the erasing he does and when he just doesn't care to even get faces and hands right yeah and his inconsistency in what he brings to it those are my problems with coletta the whole thing with like using a million lines to do stuff you can do that well and that's nowhere near the part of what really bothers me about coletta and yes as you point out this is that done much much better but yeah and that kind of texturing shouldn't be able to work to define shiny high-tech metal right right i mean that's and yet john severin makes it work it's just so fantastic anyway once again superlatives fall short of being able to describe what we see here meanwhile the guy who runs hydra who also runs this corporation imperial industries international there's a sudden blackout in their boardroom and afterwards the chairman of the board says oh let's break the meeting up and they're like oh yeah we could go home apparently this whole thing was just a signal that fury had been caught so he goes through a secret doorway the two confront each other you know supreme hydra and nick fury who's still in his straight jacket and then hydra ambassadors go off to give their demands to world leaders and that's our cliffhanger now before i pass it on to you to ask some questions i will point out that one thing i blew by earlier we do see that the guy who runs hydra has named all of the different hydra divisions with Names of animals. So naval action is sea dragon. Diplomacy is fox. So that was clearly fox that they had just sent to the world leaders to give their uh, demands. Assassins are tiger. Engineers, beaver? Okay, maybe. Beavers um, are great then, engineers. Beavers are great at building things. Well, yeah. I I know, but just in terms of it doesn't sound that badass. You know, it's like even supply camels, you know, camels are these enormous animals. But the ones who really get screwed are administration. They are the mole. (laughs) And he's saying to himself, giving my various departments the names of living creatures was a masterstroke on my part. It furnishes a feeling of identity, a sense of pride to each division. And I can just see administration being pride. Screw you, man. I mean, just, you know, what is wrong with you? How did you think this would be something? This is just the weirdest thing. His big H dial with these, like, Korean Severin devote a lot of real estate to showing the style with all of the things. I love that the Supreme Hydra is a middle American businessman. He is clearly someone who has read one too many management books. And is <laughs> someone is like you need to give your team members a feeling that uh, you know right. you, need to, uh, um, you need to give them a sense of identity, <laughs> a sense of pride in each division, right? Yes. Yeah. And Here, so here's what I'll do: I'll name administration the mole. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would be one thing if they named their clandestine division Mole. That might actually make sense. But if you're supposed to be infiltrating other organizations, call them a Mole. Exactly. 
Exactly. uh, And then it wouldn't feel quite so humiliating. (laughs) That would make sense. But then there's also uh, Supreme Hydra basically seems to follow the old adage about politics that if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog, except here instead of a dog, he's got a Black Panther or whatever it is. And uh, someone on Facebook pointed out that this big H dial looks like Dial H for Hero. It does. And apparently Dial H for Hero, I think, came out like two months later. Yeah, that's funny. Just coincidence, presumably. And I love that he sees that Nick Fury has blown up his missile silo, and it's just on a TV that's labeled Overseas. (laughs) There's a little Dymo tape label underneath the screen that just says Overseas. And I'm like, that is the least useful Dymo tape label I've ever seen. Overseas is a very broad category. Uh, On page five, what Do you not have any idea what the heck is going on with those little numbers and fractions and stuff that are drawn on the floor? Like that almost looks like some sort of mistake, but I know it's not. It's just really, really weird. Yeah, that is strange. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't look like it's uh, been drawn on the floor. It looks like it's just been drawn on the art. Yes. So I absolutely love so much about this issue. I love Nick Fury's face on page two. That's how we were taught to light faces in film school. Um, where you've got uh, sort of two light sources and then a sort of shadow in the middle of his face. It's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, Um, yeah. the the term for that in illustration and life drawing is called a core shadow. It is absolutely gorgeous. I think that this issue was very oddly potted. For this whole to take place in S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters, for some reason not on the helicarrier, this is in some sort of ground base they have. It's one thing for like, we've infiltrated the S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters, but like we've infiltrated with an entire army. And then not only do they have an entire army there to overwhelm Nick Fury, but they've got a huge tank. Like, how did they get a huge tank inside the headquarters? Then the huge tank has a huge missile that shoots out of the tank. This just does not feel like an infiltration to me. This is a massive ground assault. It just seems very strange. It would make so much more sense if this had happened while Fury was infiltrating them instead of them infiltrating him. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. But that's a minor quibble. But I can't complain. This is an absolutely gorgeous issue. This is part of the golden age of the Silver Age of the Marvel Age to have severing inking Kirby on this book. It is absolutely gorgeous. I love it. And I absolutely finishing or embellishing Kirby. Yeah, he's doing more than just inking him. Yeah, yeah. I love that the Supreme Hydra has been taking management classes and thinks he's doing (laughs) a great job with his little animal dial. And he is, in fact, not. Yeah, I wonder where he is with his Six Sigma uh, training. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Okay, so Doctor Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts, If Eternity Should Fail, written and edited by Incredible Stan Lee, plotted and illustrated by Invincible Steve Ditko, lettered and bordered by Indelible Sam Rosen. So not much happens in this issue, but we get some of the most psychedelic Ditko that we ever get. In this issue. So last issue, we had just seen that Doctor Strange had entered his own amulet and now is going into the realm of eternity. And the realm of eternity is just take everything that Ditko has done with other dimensions and then take it up by 10. (laughs) It's just absolutely insane. So then we finally see eternity. Eternity is the figure of a man with this odd headpiece coming up above. He looks like he's very much in shadow, but anywhere light does hit him, 
he looks solid. Anywhere that is in shadow, which is most of him, you can see a universe inside him inside the shadows of uh, eternity. And it really is just a stunning design that is going to spawn imitations of this sort of look for various cosmic entities in the Marvel Universe for decades to come. It's just gorgeous. It's one of my all-time favorite character designs, and we'll get a lot of good use out of the years. It's so hard to do like an otherworldly figure, and it's somewhat human, but in a way that it's not like, oh, and he's got white skin and he's got like, I mean, it's it's a problem with Galactus. I love Galactus, but I prefer this design to the Galactus design, which is saying a lot. And Galactus, you still have, you know, it's just basically a big white guy with really awesome headgear and really awesome outfit. But this is not just some white dude. This is an otherworldly figure and is absolutely gorgeous. You know, so Eternity did make it into the MCU, oddly enough, in a Thor movie. And I really did not like how Eternity was handled in that movie. I thought that the Eternity element was the weakest element of that movie. I wish they had saved him for a Doctor Strange movie, but they did not. So getting back to this, Eternity says basically anyone who comes to me is looking for power. Why are you looking for power? And Doctor Strange makes his case, and Eternity thinks about it and then comes back and says, nah, I'm not going to give you the power. You already possess the means to defeat your foes. Power is not the only answer. Events have occurred which require a key, and wisdom is that key. And then he just sends Doctor Strange on his way. So this has been a big part of his quest for issues now. And he gets to Eternity, and Eternity's like, yeah, you don't need me. Just get out of here. So it's like, okay, well, uh, the secret lies within me somehow. So he comes back to Earth and finds the Ancient One has been taken. The ectoplasmic goons show up and say, we will take you to the Ancient One. And Doctor Strange flies off with them to Mordo's hideout, where the Ancient One is being held hostage. And meanwhile, Dormammu has Clea hostage in his dimension, and Doctor Strange shows up for his big confrontation with Baron Mordo. And so that's what we've got. So not much happens in this issue. Basically, he finds Eternity. Eternity says, no, I'm not going to help you. The Ancient One is kidnapped, and we're going to have a confrontation about it. That's pretty much the entire thing. But, oh my god, (laughs) the way it's portrayed is just, you can hardly say enough about it. Yeah, if you had to pick just one issue of Dicko Other Dimensional Goodness, this may be the one issue. And the design of Eternity is just wonderful. And I love the potting in this issue. I love Dicko's potting. Strange has seemingly not gotten what he needed from Eternity and is going in with nothing. This is a beautifully potted issue and beautifully penciled and beautifully inked. Yeah, you know, Eternity could have at least told him that he just needed to click his heels together three times. That's the least he could have done. That's basically, well, it's very clever how the next two issues play out the big climax, given what has happened with Eternity, as we will see in the next big two-issue climax of this storyline. Okay, so this was some great stuff here. Let's see, are we... That is the end of this episode, is it not? It is. Okay. This has been a fantastic first half of November 1965. I I can hardly say enough good things about these issues that we've just looked at. I don't know if it's going to quite live up to this in the second half, as (laughs) often happens, but still, this was some good stuff. Yes, this was one of the best set of four books we've ever looked at on this podcast. It was absolutely gorgeous. 
just fantastic comics. And, you know, as we've said a couple of times recently, hopefully you enjoy the bad books episodes just as much as the good books <laughs> episodes, as we will see when we do the second half of this month. Yeah, I'm sometimes wonder if us just gushing about how good the art is and stuff like that might be less interesting for folks than when we're pointing out all these things that are weird and off-putting. Yeah. Uh, it might be. Yeah. We'll see. Okay, everybody. Thanks for coming out. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you very much. And read some good comics and uh, stay safe out there. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.